Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wilson, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wilson, please visit our website at fbcwilson.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. If you have a Bible and you want to open it up, we are going to start in Luke chapter 1 tonight. We are going to be looking at the character of John the Baptist. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at John the Apostle. Um, So we've been looking at some different character studies on Wednesday night. Um, Talking about the famous and the infamous, both good and bad, both positive and negative. But looking at different characters that we have in Scripture that are there to give us examples and models of how God deals with people, how people deal with God, and maybe some lessons that we can learn on how we should ordain our lives today. So when we come to these different characters, it's the same three questions every single week. Who were they? Why do we know them? And what lessons do they teach us? And so we always start off with some biographical information about the individual. uh, Mother, father, sister, brother, wife, kid, whoever it may be. um, And then try to go to why are they in scripture and why do we know about them? Now, John the Baptist, you will see accounts of John the Baptist in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So all four Gospels have parallel passages about John the Baptist. So I mainly focused on Luke just because it was kind of succinct and it helped from bouncing all over the place and and running everywhere. But if you say, well, hey, there's also more in Matthew, Mark, or John, I know that he's mentioned in those other three Gospels. So it's not that I'm ignoring them or I'm not aware of them. It's just Luke gives us a lot of the information. And uh, you can go back and find other parallel passages, but um, this kind of helps gives us a start. So, John the Baptist, who was he? Jesus' cousin. Okay. Where do we know that from? The Bible. We're acting the Bible. I don't know. Okay. Okay, so it tells us in Luke chapter 1 and verse 36 that he was a relative of John the Baptist, but it doesn't t- technically say cousin. But we do know he's a relative. How, do you know how he's a relative of Jesus? Because... Um... John's mother and Jesus' mother were cousins. Relatives. Close enough. Close enough. Right, right. They could have been third cousins. I'm just saying what the Bible says. Just say what the Bible says. So yes. So John's mother is who? Oh my gracious. Oh my gracious. Alright, so chapter 1 and verse 7, it says that John the Baptist, and I'm just going to talk to him as John. I know there's other Johns in the Bible, but for the sake of our time tonight, we're just going to stick with John. So John's mother in chapter 1 verse 7 is Elizabeth, and it tells us in verse 36 that Elizabeth and Mary were relatives, so therefore that would mean John and Jesus would be relatives. Right? Now, if, if, Mary and Elizabeth were first cousins. What would that make John and Jesus? Ah, so see, they could still be cousins, right? Maybe. Picky, picky, picky. Okay, so we know that John was a relative of Jesus. We know that his mother was Elizabeth. What else do we know about him? His father was Zechariah. His father was Zechariah. You get that probably out of chapter 1 and verse 5 maybe. Right in there. Tells us that his father was Zechariah. Okay. Do we know anything about Zechariah? Profession, vocation, where they lived, anything like that? He was a priest. He was a priest. Anything else that we might know about John or his immediate family? Do you remember why Zechariah is in the story in Luke chapter 1? Do I remember that? Because when the angel told him that Elizabeth was going to have a baby, he didn't believe it. Yes, but where was he when the angel spoke to him? In the temple of the Holy Holies. In the temple of the Holy Holies. Why? Because he was carrying that. He was... What were you going to say, Charles? That he was giving the sacrifice or the... 
the yearly offering. The yearly offering. So, in the Jewish tradition, all right, you had the offerings. And so you had, when it came to the tabernacle, which was the tent, the temple was the permanent structure. So the tabernacle was the mobile structure. It was the tent that Moses constructed there in the book of Exodus. And it was the tabernacle that they would tear down and move and erect, tear down and move and erect. And then finally, when it came time for Solomon, Solomon actually built the temple. Now you may say, well, that's just picky, picky, picky. Yeah, it, it, it is, but there's a difference. And so it helps if you, it, it, when you're talking about things that you, you kind of use the right language in the scriptures. So you have the temple, which was the permanent structure, and then you had the tabernacle. But within both of them, whether it's the tabernacle or the temple, you had how many rooms? Two. Two, right? Okay? So you had the holy place, which when you walked into the holy place, you would have the, t- the table of showbread. You would have the incense. You would have the, the candle with the seven lampstands. You would have a, a bowl and a dish. And so you had the places where the priests would go in and offer the sacrifices. But then in the second room was the holy of holies. And that was where they stored the Ark of the Covenant. And so in the holy of holies, the priest did not normally function. And the priest did not, that was not a common place. In fact, the Holy of Holies was considered sacred, and it was con- very, con- considered very set apart. And so during the normal course of the operation, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, you would have the priest outside that would be receiving the sacrifices, offering up their sacrifices, burnt sacrifices, grain sacrifices, whatever it might be. They would even go into the holy place, and they would refresh the bread, they would redo the incense, they would relight the candles, whatever it may be. He would operate the priest or the priest plural would operate in that space. But the Holy of Holies, they only went into how many times a year? Once. Okay? So remember the day? Does anybody remember what that day was called? The Day of Atonement. That's right. So on the Day of Atonement, you had one priest who was selected to go into the Holy of Holies and offer the atoning sacrifice on behalf of all of the people. It was considered a very high honor, not only to be a priest in that time, but to be one of the priests that was then selected. Because how many got selected a year? One. That's right. So you had you had they had a rotation of service, and so when you happen to be on that rotation when the Day of Atonement come, and then out of that number of priests, they would select one person to go into the Holy of Holies to offer the atoning sacrifice. Now, the atoning sacrifice was meant to be what it says, you were making an atonement for the sins of the people. Alright? So there's all kind of language when you get to Numbers or Leviticus and Numbers talking about how that Day of Atonement was to look. They would have two goats. You would have the scapegoat. Remember? You remember this? So they'd have the scapegoat and he would symbolically place all the sins onto the scapegoat and then they would leave the scapegoat out in the wilderness and they would release it and that was like the sins being removed from the people and the other goat pure, unblemished, spotless goat they would kill, and that blood is what they would use in that that atoning sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. And so there was a whole... I wouldn't say a ceremony, but there was a script. There was a very prescribed way that God had said, this is how you should do it. So, when you get in Luke chapter 1, sometimes in our Western mindset, we just read it and like, okay, so he's in the Holy of Holies out for the atoning sacrifice. Big deal. We go on. And we miss the significance of it. So, when you've got Zechariah, he is in the Holy of Holies. He is the guy that is offering the atoning sacrifice for all the people for an entire year. And that is when the angel shows up and begins to speak to Zechariah about the things to come. I think it's helpful if we try to uh, just get a, uh, maybe as, min, as much as we can, try to get a grasp on the gravity of the situation, a grasp on where Zechariah was at, why was it significant that he was there, how is it significant that then John is then um, the son of Zechariah who then becomes the forerunner of Christ. I mean, all of this stuff has symbolism to it. All of it has meaning to it beyond just a guy that wore camel's hair and ate grasshoppers. I mean, there's so much more there. Alright? So, relative of Jesus, mom was Elizabeth, dad was Zachariah, dad was a priest, so there's that priest lineage there. Um, Dad was in the Holy of Holies,
when he got the message from the angel saying, hey, this is what is going to happen. Remember the name of the angel? Gabriel. Gabriel. Alright, so that's in verse 19 of chapter 1. Alright, so what else do we know about John? He was, he was from the hill country of Judah. Okay. Wife? No. No, no, no wife. Any kids? No. No? Did you mention or not get ahead of you about why Zachariah couldn't speak? Go ahead. Because he snickered at the angel. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so the angel Gabriel showed up and said, you and your wife are going to have a kid. Now, how old was Zechariah and Elizabeth, Miss Scotty? Okay, okay. Alright, so, because see, that's, a, that's another thing that I've heard in Sunday school. That people will, yeah, see, people will try to come up with an age, but the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible just says that he and her were advanced in years. Now, you can interpret that however you want to interpret that, but obviously they were old enough that when Gabriel said to Zechariah, you're going to have a boy, Gabriel, you said snickered? Snickered. snickered. That's like a cookie, but we'll, we'll go with that, okay? So it was like, it was like Gabriel then snickered at I'm sorry, Zachariah then snickered at Gabriel and saying, there is no way. And so Gabriel said, you will not speak. You will not speak until when? Until the baby's born. Until the baby's circumcised. born or he's circumcised. circumcised? Circumcised. And actually in Luke 1, he doesn't start talking until the baby is circumcised and named. Right? So because they said, um, this is what's going to happen. You are going to have a child. And it says in verse verse 13, you shall call his name John. So it's very specific. Gabriel is very specific. You're going to have a boy. You're You're going to call his name John. And then this is what he is going to do. So it was after the baby was born. On the eighth day he was circumcised. And on the eighth day they named him John. And the family and the rest of the friends were like, we can't name him John. That's not a family name, and it tells us there that uh, Zechariah wrote out there on the tablet, his name is John, and once that was settled, then he was able to speak. Can you imagine not being able to speak for nine months? Oh, that'd be so cool. <laughs> that'd be so cool. Kid comes up, daddy, 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 pointed his mom. Oh, that'd be awesome. Oh, that'd be so cool. All I, all I got to do is just sit around and just read. That'd be neat. All right, what else do we do? We know anything else? Any other family that we might know about, John? Okay, so I don't know of anywhere where the Bible speaks of a spouse. I don't know anywhere where the Bible speaks of children. I don't know of anywhere where the Bible speaks of any other family beyond um, his father, his mother, and then the relative, Miss Mary. Um, But other than that, I could not find, and I don't know of anything that speaks about any more of his family. So, then let's ask the question, well, why do we know about John? So, we know who he is. Why is he in Scripture, and what is so significant about him? He's a forerunner of Jesus. Is that what you said, Mr. Hill? He baptized him. He baptized Jesus. All right. So he's a forerunner of Jesus. He baptized. What do you mean by forerunner, Miss Levita? Well, he, he was the one that told everybody that. Okay. Was told everybody that Jesus was coming. Is that fair? Okay. I mean, that I'm not worthy to wash his shoes or his feet. Sandals. Sandals? Right? Okay. You see that in the Gospel of John where he talks about his worth. <laughs> Was there anything particular about his appearance or his diet? Okay. And honey? Yeah. Okay. He was in the wild. He was feral. Is that, is that, would that be the word we use these days? He was feral, right? Okay. So if you look down there, if you look down there in chapter 1, we're still in Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 15, it says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, does anybody know or remember other people in the Bible that have not been permitted to drink strong drink and what that was a symbol of? Samson. Samson? Okay. 
the Nazarite, right? So you had a Nazarite vow. Now, no, no, no. Before you start going, where did you get that from? It doesn't say that I've been all fine in the four Gospels that John was a Nazarite. However, his conduct was very similar to the Nazarite vow. Where do I get that from? Well, you can write this down if you want to. Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, it gives us a description of the Nazarite vow. And the primary thing that distinguished a Nazarite was one, their diet. They didn't have any alcohol. They didn't have anything that was produced by the vine. And then number two, they would not cut their hair. Now, the only time I've seen John the Baptist was in the Chosen episodes, okay? But even in those episodes, he's got long hair and a big beard, okay? Even right here in this little picture, he's got long hair and a beard, okay? He doesn't live at my house, obviously. So, it's one of those things that it doesn't tell us in 1 and 15 that he wouldn't cut his hair, but it is eluded to that he was feral, and that's my word, not, not the Bible's word, but that he was feral, kind of a wild man, right? Out in the wilderness, out in the desert, but it does tell us that he's not going to have strong drink. So some people, some commentators have then surmised, if you will, that he had that Nazarite vow placed upon him. Now, a difference between him and Samson would be Samson had a little superpower, right? He had a little superpower called strength that was from his long hair, and John the Baptist didn't have that superpower to the best of our knowledge. So, we know him because the Bible says that he wore camel hair, right? So he wasn't dressed in the linens and in the fabrics that was kind of in vogue in that time. His diet was different. He pretty much stayed out in the wilderness. And so he ate the stuff that he could find out in the wilderness. All right. Um, tells us there in 1 and 15 that he didn't have any drink. All right. So we know kind of some of his conduct and some of his attitude. What else do we know about him that makes him stand out? He was born with the Holy Spirit. Yes. Right? So that goes back to when Jesus and they were together, Elizabeth and Mary, and the Bible said he leaped in the mother's womb. Yes. And so it's like Jesus gave him the Holy Spirit at that. I mean, that's what I get out of it. Is there any other person that we that we know of in Scripture that has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit prior to Acts chapter 2? No. I don't know of anybody. Um, so, I, you know, some like, you may say, well, Spence, what about like Saul when Saul had the harmful spirit was upon him? Um, even in the Old Testament, we don't, I don't know of a place where it talks about that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But you're right, Denise. When it says there, it says in verse uh, 15, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that significant to me? It's significant to me because Jesus tells them in the upper room discourse in John 15 through John 17 that whenever I leave, the Helper slash Holy Spirit will come. And the Holy Spirit's not going to come until I leave. So that's when you get to Acts chapter 2 and all the disciples are up in the upper room and they're praying and then the Holy Spirit falls. What do you think? So how can they go out and heal and raise the dead before them? So the way I understand it, Steve, is that Jesus gave them authority and gave them the power, but I don't, I am not familiar with where they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit prior to Acts 2. So you're saying He gave them a temporary spirit? That is where I'm leaning. <laughs> that's, that's, that's where I'm softly leaning. Well, I also thought that John had to have the Spirit in order to baptize Jesus. Sure. But he is the only one that I know of that is express explicitly said this person can be filled with the Holy Spirit prior to Acts chapter. And I think that's no, so in fifteen it says that there's the last thing he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's yeah. womb. Yeah. Yes. So so it's like he was born, he was... Yes, and and there I don't know of another place where that language is used or anybody else. And I think that's significant that it sets him apart. Now whether Jesus gave that to him when I, I don't know that's that would be speculation but the Gabriel says Zachariah hey Zachariah this can be part of the this can be part of the deal she's gonna have a baby and that baby is going to be John he's gonna have a significant role to play in the kingdom of God and he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb 
Which, you know, if you're Zechariah, what do you have to reference that? I mean, that it, would that probably would that so, make sense to Zechariah? Well, that's I, I don't know if it would make sense or not to him. I, mean, I don't know how much. In verse sixteen, I take it because he. Gabriel's telling him too, he's going to be a forerunner and everything. All that from Malachi. Yes. So the prophet Malachi had already read all that down so that Zachariah should have had access to know, oh wait, this is Malachi's already told me about this. Yes. And to pick at the question, how do you walk with God though and not have the spirit? He wouldn't have needed it because when he was with you, right? How do you walk with God? I was, I'm going back to Old Testament Enoch. Uh huh. So how would he, how did he walk with God and not have his spirit present in him? I don't. Maybe, it's, maybe this is the first time that they did it, that it's talked about. I think it's the first time it's talked about. I don't see anywhere in the Old Testament where the Spirit was a necessity. Because I don't see anywhere where it talks about Moses having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he walked with God. Abraham. I don't see anywhere where it said that he had the indwelling. I'm saying but, from Saul into David into the prophets, you always see that it says the Spirit was laid on them. They were never indwelled, but it was laid on these people, on these specific people. Because even Saul, whenever he messed up, Sacrifice, it says the spirit was withdrawn from him. Sure. So we're talking about temporary spirit again. Potentially. To God's intention. External versus internal. <laughs> so what does it say? In one, it, what does it say in verse seventeen about John the Baptist and his role? So talked about his hair, maybe potentially Nazarite, filled with the spirit. That's verse fifteen. What about seventeen? Yeah, I don't know what seventeen is, but he also had disciples of his own. Okay, he had disciples of his own, that's right. Also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And Elijah. So what so what is significant about Gabriel saying John is going to be connected with the ministry of Elijah? The spirit. The spirit, but also in the mission. So if you think back to Elijah, Elijah was coming on the scene when the majority of the Hebrew nation had turned away from God. Ahab and Jezebel were in power and they were running the show. And so it was Elijah that showed up and said, Hey, you've left God. You've turned away from God. You're in rebellion against God. You need to repent and turn back to God. And so that type of ministry and that type of ministry where you were a lone voice crying out when everybody else was going left, you were going right. That lone voice, Gabriel connects what John is going to do to the ministry of Elijah. Now he doesn't say he is Elijah, he just said he's going to fulfill a ministry like Elijah coming as a speaker, coming as a herald, coming as a crier, if you would use a word from several generations ago. But he's going to come out and he's going to be saying, hey... Like John does, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The same way that Elijah, several centuries before that, was coming on the scene and saying, God has revealed Himself. You have turned away. Turn back to God. Right? That was part of the whole drought that Elijah was responsible for was what? Getting their attention. You're not God. Baal is not God. Jezebel is not God. Ahab is not God. And to prove it, it's not going to rain because God said it's not going to rain. And it's not going to rain until God says it will rain so we can prove who the real God is because there was all of this polytheism that was going around at that time. Make sense? So when he says there, he's he's talking about John, that ministry of Elijah... I find to be very significant the fact that he is saying this is the kind of life he's going to live. So you're Zechariah. Now here's I can show you a lot of commentaries that just are hateful. Not hateful. They're critical of Zechariah. How could Zechariah in the Holy of Holies facing Angel Gabriel, how could he snicker? And I think to myself, well, but can you imagine what all everything Gabriel saying to him? Zechariah had spent his entire life under that Old Testament law. His father had spent his whole life under the Old Testament law. For 450 years, seven, eight generations, they had been under this idea. And so now you're a man sitting in a tent out of the blue... 
There was no sign. There was no earthquake. There was no comet. There was no star. It seems like out of the blue. Because if you think about here in Luke chapter 1, there had been nobody that had come on the scene. No one had come on the scene to say, Jesus is coming. So you're Zechariah for the last 400 years, silence. And now you're in the Holy Holies. Here comes Gabriel. And Gabriel says, you and your wife are advancing years and you're going to have a kid. And this kid is going to be named John. And this kid is going to have a Nazarite type lifestyle. And this kid is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this kid is going to continue the ministry of Elijah. That's a lot for a father to try to process and to think about. So I'm not saying that he should have believed. I'm just saying that we could have a little bit of leaning that somebody might not fully understand everything that was being said. So, in verse 18, what does Zechariah do? Zechariah doesn't say, fat chance, buddy. He doesn't say, no, I don't want it. He doesn't say, can I get a second opinion? He just simply says, how shall I know this? Now, yes, he is snickering. Yes. I just... I think we need to be cautious because we will read stuff in God's word and you and I will look at that and we'll be like, Shh, that can't be true. <laughs> we, we, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. All right. So ministry of Elijah filled with the Holy Spirit, had that Nazarite type lifestyle. Miss Levita said he was a forerunner of Christ. So if you get over there to Luke chapter 3, all right, this is where it kind of picks up on how he um, fulfilled that mission of being a, uh, a forerunner of Christ. It says there in Luke chapter 3 and verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, is there any place that you can think of before John the Baptist where you see baptism being employed? I don't know of another place. I thought they had to go to become a Jew. A lot of people think Jews were just born to be Jews, but they accept people from the outside. I am not familiar, and, 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 but I don't have the entire Bible memorized either. I'm, I'm not familiar where, I know there were ceremonies for a sojourner to then be grafted in to the uh, Jewish tradition. I, I'm aware of, there were ceremonies and there was ways that somebody that wanted to come into the Jewish tradition could do that. I'm not familiar with there being a baptismal type part of that. But up until this, baptism wasn't a thing. Now, you know, us sitting here tonight, baptism is not such a off-the-wall idea. It's not such a, a crazy notion. Because it really doesn't matter what your your tradition or your religious tradition is. Um, I think the vast majority of people today have a concept of what baptism is. There will be people that have different views of baptism and what baptism means and what baptism looks like. But as far as the concept of baptism, a vast majority of the people in the church today, regardless of the denomination, have a concept of what baptism is. However, before John came on the scene, that wasn't a part of the Old Testament law. It wasn't a, every year you need to come and you need to offer this many sacrifices and this money, this many, uh, this much amount of money and do this and do this and be baptized. And so when John comes on the scene, this is something that is radical. Very different. And not just Baptism, but why were they being baptized? Repentance of sin. Now, before that, how would they deal with their sin? Sacrifices. Now, here's the question Was their baptism an act of atonement in the eyes of God? So it was new, right? It was John the Baptist doing it. It was John the Baptist doing it, and it says that they were being baptized, um, claiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But was the baptism that John was administering, was it a means of atonement for their sins? No. 
I, I don't think so. I, that's right. That's right. I, I, so I don't think it was. So you say, well, Spence, why do you bring that up? Well, because, because there are those out there that would try to claim, when he says claiming a baptism of repentance, they will read into that language that they were repenting of their sins and being forgiven of their sins through the baptism. The way that I read it and the way that the people that I listen to read this is that when they were coming to be baptized, they were saying, I have sinned, I have turned away from God, and I want to make an outward demonstration of my wanting to return back to faithfulness and obedience to God. Does that make sense? So it wasn't they were coming saying, through this water baptism, I am being forgiven as much as I am repenting and this is one of the acts of my repentance. Okay? So you'll see this sometimes when you have somebody that they want to quit a vice. Alright? And uh, I'm not, I don't have anybody particular in mind, so if you think I'm picking on you, no. But let's say you're a a smoker and you like, um, let's find something that I don't think anybody in the room is going to do. Let's say you like the Camel wide shorts, and that's that's your deal. And you're halfway through the pack of cigarettes, and you're like, "I'm done." What would you do? Some people would take that pack of cigarettes and they throw it in the trash, right? Right? Not the house trash, because you know if you throw it in the house trash, you just go back and pick it up. All right, so you got to go to the trash where you're not going to be susceptible to go back and pick it up. That's why some people wait till they're driving down the road and they throw it out while they're driving down the road, so they don't think they can go back and pick it back up. I digress, but. It's one of those things that you will say, hey, as a symbol of me saying, I'm done, I quit, no more, they would throw that away. Alright? So when they're coming to John for baptism, it's not because that is what is saving them or forgiving them. It is an act to say, I realize that I have turned away from God, I'm living a life of disobedience, and this is me pronouncing that I am going to move back towards faithfulness and obedience to God. Tracking? Tracking? Okay? So, so when we think about this picture of what he's doing, it's radical. It's different. It had never been done before. So if you get in the Gospels and they start saying, the, the people are like, we don't understand. This guy's crazy. This guy's nuts. Yeah, because the things he was doing, they had never seen done before. So John is out there. He comes out of the wilderness. He starts telling everybody, repent and believe. And then he, uh, in fact, it says down there in chapter 3 and verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you breed of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This is language that they were unfamiliar with in the Old Testament system. And he comes out, and because he's the forerunner, because he's that type of Elijah, he comes out and he is flipping the story, if you will, in a different direction. Do I remember what happens to John? Get his head cut off. Why? Do you remember where that's at? You, you're thinking Matthew 14, aren't you? Yes. Okay, so so you really don't... So in Luke 9, verses 7 through 9, you get a little small snippet. Alright, so I am going to ask you to turn to Matthew 14. Alright, so um, you get over there to Matthew 14, and we get kind of the backstory on then what happens to John. Okay, so John is the forerunner. Like I told you, in all four Gospels, it talks about John. You can see where John is on the scene. We really don't know after Jesus comes to the scene. We really don't know how long John was operating. Um, kind of simultaneously as Jesus was starting out. We really don't know exactly how many days or months or years it was after Jesus started his earthly ministry that John was then imprisoned. Um, We can speculate and we can guess based upon where it's given us in Scripture, but we don't have a chronological timeline. What we do know is that somewhere after Jesus began his ministry, John got sideways with who? Herod the Tetrarch. Now, who is this Herod the Tetrarch? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Why would we know? Well, man, tell me how, Tell me, maybe, let's expand this out a little bit. Who's his dad? Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Why would we know about Herod the Great? Okay, so Herod the Great was the one that tried to kill Jesus. 
He's the one that killed the babies. Herod dies. Herod has how many kids? Four? Or is it three or four? I thought it was three. Okay. Well, the, three or four. However, tetrarch means what? Anybody know? A leader of a fourth of a province. So after after Herod the Great died, they split up that area of Roman rule and they split it up in force. And so Herod, the son of Herod the Great, his dad was one that tried to kill Jesus. This is the son and he is kind of the, the big shot over a fourth of the territory his dad once had. So when you see Herod the Tetrarch, that's why that's why that's there. Okay, So it says in chapter, I'm, I'm in Matthew 14 in chapter uh, 1. Matthew 14 chapter 1. It says at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants, this is John on the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And then in verse 3 in Matthew, Matthew gives us this information and then it's like Matthew turns back and says, let me give you the backstory." That is why I want to be really careful about saying, well, it happens chronologically in chapter 14 because what Matthew is doing is he is saying, this is what John, this is what Herod the Tetrarch said, verse 1 through 2, and then he says, now let me catch you up on the backstory, and that's where he looks back in verse 3. Does that make sense? Right? So if I'm telling you about something today and then I say, well, let me qualify it by telling you what happened yesterday so that way you can better understand what's happening today. So he turns back and he says, for Herod, verse 3, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So as the story goes, Herod, kind of a big shot, right? Has a little power, sees his sister-in-law, says, hmm, I think that I would like to have a close relationship with my sister-in-law. So he takes his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, to be his wife. John the Baptist says, no, (laughs) that's not okay. Now, remember, remember, think back to Elijah and Elisha. Remember Naboth? Remember the vineyard, right? Remember those actions where that prophet then came and said, no, that's not okay, right? I remember when all that stuff came to pass. So you got John. He's fulfilling this role as a prophet and a truth teller. So John comes and says, no, you're wrong. So Herod's like, bah humbug. I don't like what you have to say. But he's scared of the people and so he won't kill John. But, verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias. So this would uh, maybe the stepdaughter, if you will. Um, the way the language kind of gives us is the stepdaughter of Herod the Tetrarch. Um, the daughter came and danced before the company. It pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he commanded to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter. And given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. Like that one pastor put it, that uh, her wife's a teenage daughter actually went and got the advice from her mother for something to do. <laughs> See, that's good. I just, my mind, my mind just starts wondering. So, you got the daughter of Herodias and then you got Herodias, okay? So mother and daughter, they're sitting there and they've got a platter. And on it is the head of John the Baptist. What do you do now? I mean, what do you, do you just go over to the trash can and just dump it in the trash can? I mean, it's like I, I would really like to know what they do. I mean, what how what happened now? It tells us that the disciples. This is verse twelve of chapter fourteen. The disciples came, took the body, and buried it, and went and told Jesus. So we know what they did with the body because the disciples came and and they buried him and all that kind of stuff. But I just kind of wonder. It never says what happens to his head. Which you're like, why does it matter? I just I'm sitting there thinking. So what do you do now? Well, the use that I have to give to someone that couldn't see. His ears. Organ donation. Is that what you're saying? Organ donation. Okay. Okay. So he had marked that on his driver's license. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I just, you know, they're just. I mean, if it is a trophy or. I mean, I mean, if you're twisted enough to have somebody beheaded, who knows what you do with it? I just. Probably a knife. There's actually a. a Way with John 11. Uh huh. That John the Baptist actually has a bit of doubt. 
You'll see that also in Matthew 11, yeah. where, where, where John's in prison and he's wondering, is this really Jesus? I'm languishing away in prison and I've got doubts. And then Jesus says, go back and tell him all these things that you're seeing and all these things you're doing. Yes. I just, you know, there's things like that. I just wonder, like, so what do they do at the head? I mean, like, what, what, what happened? I mean, just, I don't know. It's just the way things that come into my mind. All right. So you got John. Okay. So this is how he died. And it's just like, it's over with. He's done. No big funeral. Wasn't the legacy of John that he led so many people. Wasn't that he was instrumental in the early church of the book of Acts. It was just like, boom. John came on the scene. Forerunner to Christ. Did all these things. Got imprisoned because he wouldn't keep his mouth shut. Stayed in prison because he wouldn't capitulate and compromise. Ended up losing his head because a teenage girl could dance. And that's it. What else do we know about it? Anything else he sticks out in your head? God's purpose. He did serve God's purpose. That's right. That's right. Okay? So then, last question. What lessons does he teach us? Okay? So he, that, that could be one lesson to shut your mouth. Okay? We're just visitors. We're just visitors. Right? That's a language you're going to see out of 1 Peter. We're just exiles. We're just sojourners on this land. That's right. I wonder why God chose the name John. What does that mean John in the original language? Does that, what, I mean, it was common to some degree, right? My understanding, yes. I... I struggle with looking back on meaning of words. I think, well, this is this is personal. This is my per. I think it gets abused sometimes, and I don't know if it really meant that. I mean, I can go into a lot of different truck stops, and I'll see this name, and it means this. And I go to another truck stop, and it has another name, and it says means something else. Or I go into Mardell, and it says, you know, I, I always have doubts. I always have doubts. Does that really mean? Does that really? I. I don't know why he chose John, and I know that John was a, a name that wasn't uncommon, um, but I didn't look back into maybe what the name meant or maybe something that was significant about it. Well, one of the lessons that stick out to me is the clarity that John had to his purpose from God. There's a clarity. Even, even before he was born, there was clarity given from Gabriel to Zechariah and then to his mother. This is who he is, and then this is what he's going to do. And then you see there in Luke chapter 3, and especially in verse 7 and verse 8, that when John comes on the scene, he is very laser focused. He knows what God has called him to do, and he knows what he is going to do for God. There's a clarity that I find to be a lesson for my life, maybe your life, because there are times in this world that I think on purpose this world is trying to keep you and I teetering and tottering between a thousand different opportunities or a thousand different possibilities or we're constantly chasing and we're constantly like a rabbit pursuing after different things and going off in a lot of different directions and sometimes we just need that clarity that comes from silence, that clarity that comes from closeness that clarity that comes with obedience and faithfulness and saying there's a thousand things I can do today but what is the next thing that God is calling me to do today. And I think there's a, there's a clarity that when John comes on the scene in Luke chapter 3, he just has a, he has a very clear focus. I know why I'm here. I know why God has me here. And I know what faithfulness and obedience looks like for God. Now, for me, and maybe for you, we may sit here in October of 2023 and may say, well, Spence, it's not that clear. Why? Our disobedience. We're not seeking. I don't think it's a lack of clarity from God's Word. I don't think it's one of those things that God has made it more confusing or more distracting. 
the, the fancy word that you may hear people talk about is the perspicuity of Scripture. And I'll perfect. They come up with some of these fancy words so it takes up more words in a textbook, and that way it takes up more pages in a textbook, and that way you have to pay more for the textbook itself. So, but they'll, they'll talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, and the perspicuity of Scripture means that Scripture is clear. You and I may come to it, it may take us several readings to try to understand what it's saying, but by and large, Scripture is meant to be clear. It's meant to be understandable. So, my personal opinion is, is that when it comes to Scripture, the clarity comes with the quietness of spending time with God. It comes with the closeness of being close to God, being near and being clean and being straight and being obedient and being faithful. And that clarity comes with intimacy with God. Whenever in my life that clarity becomes distorted is because I have placed distance between me and God. And I think there's a lesson to learn about the clarity. Why did John have clarity? Because he wasn't caught up chasing money. He wasn't caught up chasing fame. He wasn't caught up chasing possessions. He wasn't caught up facing popularity. He wasn't caught up facing making a name for himself. He was content with being out in the desert, eating whatever God provided, knowing that this is my job, is to serve God, be faithful to God. Now does that mean that you have to go outside and uh, wear animal clothes and eat honey the rest of your life? No, no, no. But it could be that your lack of clarity in God's will for your life is a symptom of a enlarged distance between you and God. He did not have a lot of distractions. That's right. That's right. Nine months more in Holy Spirit. I mean, there is, and some of you are a lot more. Well, it's back there on that stand. Some of you are a lot more advanced on how to have the discipline over that piece of electronic device. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'll, I'll pull that phone out, right? Check the weather. Thirty minutes later, I'm off. And it's by design. It is not by accident. It is intentionally by design. But it's distractions. Distractions that will that will come in. There's another one that sticks out to me. A few minutes I got left. Clarity. The other one I the other one the other lesson that stuck out to me was conviction. Clarity and conviction. John knew what God wanted him to do. John could have said but they won't listen. John could have said, they won't like it. John could have said, I could get in trouble. John could have said, no one has done this before. John could have said, I have never done this before. John could have said a thousand excuses, but John had the conviction because he had clarity what God's will for his life, and he had the conviction to be obedient to God's will for his life, and he had the conviction to say, the worst thing they can do to me is kill me. That conviction. Why do we need that conviction today? Because we are being bombarded by unbiblical attacks. Regularly. Regularly. And we must be on guard. We must be on guard. And it's going to take, in the days ahead, it is going to take people of conviction to know what God's Word says and to have the conviction to say, this is what God's Word says and this is where I am. Because the world is constantly trying to get you and I to sway and sway and sway and sway and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I mean, come to my house. Got these kids that have chores, right? One of their chores is to sweep the floor with a broom. Okay? Pretty standard operation. And they come in there and they sweep the floor. And you go, did you sweep? Yep. Well, what's that over there in the corner? Now, I can tell you what it is. It's dirt that you didn't sweep. I mean, this isn't, this isn't difficult. You were lazy and you didn't sweep. 
and they do their whole theatrics trying to get you to give in. My dad was a master of this, especially at camp. He would tell those kids to go sweep, and those kids we had done, and my dad would tell them, have you swept? Yes, I have. Is it clean? Yes, it is. So everything that I can find you're willing to eat. They, he would. He would. And they would get that look on their face like, oh. And he, and it, it was really simple. If you have done it, then you shouldn't have any problems. Right? So, but, but those, those teenagers are always trying to get us as parents to just give in. Yeah, Dad, you see it over there, but it's not that big of a deal. No. Either you swept or you didn't. And if you did sweep, then that wouldn't be there. So if you did it, there's a standard. This is right. This is wrong. This is the standard. Either you meet it or you don't meet it. But what the teenagers are trying to get the parents to do is to give in, to soften, right? To get, compromise a little bit here, compromise a little bit here, and they know when they get you, they got you, okay? And that's what this society and this world is trying to do to you and I. Give a little bit. Give a little bit. Give a little bit. Those, those, those sweet young ladies and those shorts... I, I don't know where those shorts are going to be at another two or three years, but I, I just shudder to think where those shorts, because those shorts have not stopped. They're, they are <laughs> keep, keep going up and up and up. And, and, and it's just, where's, that's what the world's going to do. That is what the world's going to do. Continue to try to get us. And we're going to have to have people that are going to have to have conviction. How do you get conviction? You get clarity. How do you get clarity? By being close and clean to God. Why is it so important that we have conviction? Because there's a lost world all around us that are being fed a diet of unbiblical things. And we have been placed here to be a light to speak biblical truth. So when I come to John the Baptist, I see a man with clarity, and I see a man with conviction. Any other lessons that stick out to you? Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wellston. We would love to hear from you or connect with you if you will visit our website at fbcwellston.org. Please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.